All right, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Continuing our exploration of letters to a young Muslim who would like to read. Preferably one of you not on mute. Okay, Aman, please read for us. Start from where it says the world was divided. The world was divided clearly into that which was permitted and not permitted. Again, lots of parallels with the digital binary world of the 21st century. Either something is good or it is not good. Wait. They're right here. One or zero. Our Islamic ethics traditionally reflect this kind of approach, simplicity. We find a mufti, the person who is allowed to make rules or provide religious advice and judgments, who has the correct credentials, and we either search his written opinions or ask him directly. Occasionally, the mufti seems to be talking about things that are not so relevant. Perhaps they are relevant, and we have been focused on the wrong things all along. In any case, you have found yourself a knowledgeable, qualified religious authority. Who knows what he is talking about? Over time, you will learn from him the proper way to be a good Muslim. Okay, so... Quite often. This oh, just to interrupt you for a second. So, so... Uh, even though I think he's correct in terms of how people present Islam, uh, I don't like the way he's pres- he uh, this. Uh, I don't like this presentation. That okay, it's basically uh, you have halal and haram, as though you know these are your two choices in life. Uh, a better way to look at it is <clears throat> uh, you have you're permitted everything, but there's the smallest of things you're not permitted. I think psychologically it's a very different approach to the world because when we say the world split between halal and haram or what you can do what you can't do it almost makes it seem like it's 50-50 when the list of things you're supposed to do is very short and the list of things you can't do is also very short so it's sort of like when Allah is speaking to Adam and Eve peace be upon them in the garden and he says to them okay have whatever you want just don't come near this tree. And so drink whatever you want, just don't drink these things. Eat whatever you want, just don't eat these things. Uh, that, I think, psychologically is a very different uh, depiction. But the bigger point he's talking about is, all right, well, then where do you go? And so you look for a scholar that you trust, although sometimes the scholar, the scholar you're looking to might seem like they don't live in the same world as you do. You know, that, I think, is a very common problem. Okay, uh, continue, Amon. Quite often, this binary approach seems more appropriate to a different time and place. Sometimes you wonder whether there might be another way in which we Muslims can be good Muslims and interact seamlessly with the multicultural, multicolored, multi-fragmented world that we actually live in. I know it is difficult to face uncertainty. It is more difficult for you in today's world than it was in my generation. We had less to be uncertain about. Many of us are now set in our ways. A a little uncertainty can be put out of our minds. But you and your generation need to form your own ideas and your own approach to the world. Your world is more complicated, more volatile, more unpredictable. Why is this the case? The simplest answer is that the world is open to you through technology. There are no walls, no vast open spaces where nothing happens, as there were only a few decades ago. 
That is why many of you and your friends will try to lock into whatever certainty that you can or that you find. The need to know that certain things are true is a human instinct. This is the desire for certainty. It is how we orient ourselves. It is how we give ourselves direction and protect ourselves. Certainty is the mental shell that pushes away doubt. The world you live in is different because the building of certainty requires more time, more knowledge, more experience, and more trust than ever before. Every child of your generation is in the same position from the depths of Africa and Asia to the cities of North America. Okay, very good. So, so one of the big points he's mentioning here is what that uncertainty is a part of life, but your generation is hit with a whole lot more uncertainty than my generation is. And he's saying it's directly related to technology. And with technology, you have access to so much more of the world. So, so some of you have heard this from me many times. Uh, I was in college when email was getting introduced. Then the internet was not even anything we could have imagined. When the internet started, we were like blown away. But you're all, I mean, uh, for all of you, uh, uh, smartphones came out while you were kids. I mean, smartphones for us were also amazing. They're like astonishing uh, that, you know, all the things you could do with your phone. But what the end result is, is part of it is that you have access to so much more of the world, which means you have access to so many more points of uncertainty. And this issue of certainty versus uncertainty is one of the big challenges of life always, but especially for all of you. And so students are always coming to my office struggling with anxiety, anxiety because of uncertainty. You know, will I get into such and such school? Will I get married? Will I have a career? Will I be happy with my life? All of this is part of the, this exact experience of, of, of uh, uncertainty. And he's also making the point, okay, this isn't, just, this isn't just in one region. This is everywhere, all over the world. And even ask yourself, uh, on a scale of, of zero to 10, well, let's make it zero to 100, how comfortable are you with the uncertainties of life? Where 100 is you're 100% comfortable and zero is that you're 0% comfortable. What number would you each give? Adil, what number would you give? I think I'd go about 60, 40. 60% I'm confident I've ever had. Because okay. the psychology behind that is when you're at your lowest, you don't have any route, so who do you look up to? Allah. And then at the point, I like that move, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Amon, give us a number. Obviously, this is not a test. We're not going to save this. Well, we are saving this, but yeah. I'm going to go much lower than Adil, maybe like 10, 20. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I think that's closer to the common undergrad. You know. uh, Hina, give us a number. Where do you think you are? Um, I don't know. I'm still thinking. Okay, fair enough. Takwa? I'd say I'm a good like 50-50 because um, I, I feel like how I kind of look at it is it's uncertain and it's like basically out of my control so why worry about it uh, but also like the other half of me is just like yeah you should worry like you do have kind of some control over it uh -huh. I guess it comes to that like debate like how much control do we have out over our lives uh -huh. and what's already maktoub sure sure uh, translate maktub for everybody here. Written, basically. Yeah, literally, it's what's written for us. Yeah. 
And, and so no exaggeration in terms of comfort level with uncertainty, I'm probably about 90 or 95. And a big reason is just because I've been through life, life goes on. So I know that literally whatever it is that I get hit with, whether it's big or small, life goes on. And that's sort of like a point. I mean, I wasn't always at that point. When I was uh, all your ages, I was probably the same numbers that, that all of you gave anywhere from, from 60 to 50 to 10 and such. Um, but then you also reach a point when you've had so many ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs that life goes on, you know. And it doesn't even mean necessarily that you give up on your hopes on what life should be like, but you're also getting better at negotiating with life. You know, so suppose, you know, everybody in my house gets COVID. You know, like I think I told some of you, my niece, had, my niece has COVID right now, you know, or, you know, fire burns down everything. Or, you know, I lose my job. So there's three people in my department who've actually, uh, they've been put on furlough through the course of this year that they're each going on furlough for like 90 days. And in the sense that they have no pay because the university is trying to deal with the budget. And, and so, so the point is that you never know when your income is going to suddenly vanish, suddenly vanish. You never know where you're suddenly going to be hit with a bombshell about an illness problem and such. And part of the goal of life is, is reaching the point of accepting that as the norm. And you deal with it. And so, so imagine, uh, and this is an example I very commonly give to students. Imagine you have to get somewhere, you get a flat tire. And one option is to say, okay, why me? Why does this always happen to me? What am I going to do, right? The other option is what, all right? I got to get the flat tire fixed somehow. Either I do it myself or I wave for people or I call AAA, whatever it is, I have to fix the flat tire. I don't want to sit here on the side of the road the whole time. And that's uh, exactly life. So Alotel is going to pour th things in your life that essentially are big and small versions of getting a flat tire. Every single thing you're getting hit with is a variation of the flat tire. And suppose you get a flat tire today, and then two weeks later you get another flat tire, and another week later you get another flat tire. You could be thinking, okay, what's wrong with my car? Why does this keep happening? Or you could think, hey, you know, why is this happening to me? If you start thinking, why is this happening to me? You're going to make yourself miserable. If you're thinking, okay, there's something wrong with my car. Yeah, but right now I got to fix the tire because I got to get to where I got to get to. That's the approach you should take. You know, fix the, uh, address the immediate issue. Who cares about how it makes you feel? If there's a, a chronic issue, then you try to figure out what else is going on. But try not to fall into the trap of why me, why me, why me? There's no benefit that comes from that style of thinking. Make sense? Oh, I have a question. Yes. Uh, is your name um, Amina or Amina? Amina. Welcome. Um, thank you. Um, oh, you want to introduce yourself to everybody? Oh, my name is Amina. Um, I'm a freshman. I don't know. That's um, cool. Where do you, yeah. where do you live? <laughs> um, I'm in Indianapolis. <laughs> do you say Indianapolis? Yeah. Okay, so so you, like Aman, live far away from Chicago, although you're only about three and a half hours. But yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, yes, ma'am. So, like, how do you, 
you're talking about like addressing like the like emotions of the moment right when you get that flat tire but like mm-hmm. um the like larger issue that you keep having a flat tire or whatever like what you need to do like fix the front tire the moment mm-hmm. how do you balance like addressing your emotions of the situation and also fixing the front you know what i mean because you can't just like mm-hmm. yeah this is, this is like, a, this is a, go ahead keep going I thought you were so so this is also an important question it means it doesn't mean that you are emotionless it's perfectly fine to be upset you know uh especially if you're physically in pain you know uh let's say uh you're you are walking and then you slip and you fall downstairs and break your leg okay I'm not saying, hmm, I must deal with this broken leg now and, and move forward. Obviously not. You're going to be screaming in pain. And so, so the emotional aspect of it is still normal. Um, and what we want to try to get better at as we grow older is keeping the emotional aspect also in check. So you want to be honest with yourself, like, okay, this sucks. This sucks that I have to deal with this. But me being emo- uh, upset right now is not going to help me at, at all. You know, uh, I'll give you I'll give you a different example. So one time I had to give a talk at a high school in the Southwest Side, and I was driving from Loyola, and I ran out of gas on Lakeshore Drive. Okay, is so so okay. So I drive a hybrid, and I'm a Daisy uncle. So I try to literally go for the longest time I possibly can with no gas. Okay. And sometimes I can go for like two, three days. I mean, it's been a long time since I've driven my car. And, and so I'm on the curve on Lakeshore Drive when you're going southbound, just before you get to La- uh, um, uh, Grand Park, run out of gas. Car is dead. And so now I have to get out of my car and push it on Lakeshore Drive where people are going 45, 50 miles an hour, change lanes, and, and set my car still on the street on Lakeshore Drive in front of Grant Park, but in a place that's a little bit more safe. And I'm watching cars coming from behind and thinking, okay, if one of those dudes is texting, I'm dead. Yeah. And, and so I'm having this battle in my head where I'm realizing I have absolutely no control of the situation right now. In terms of the de- in terms of the people that are in my lane driving, and I could literally get splattered, right? And and so I'm fighting with the emotion with myself, which is to be terrified, okay, and to try to be just accepting of the situation. So that's the internal battle that's going on. Meanwhile, I'm trying to figure out how to get gas. Okay? And so, so the point I'm making, Amina, is that yes, yeah, sometimes there's going to be these moments where you're actually battling with your own emotions. You know, and it could be either pain uh, or it could be fear or something. And you still get to fight against yourself to get the immediate job done. And, and to make a long story short, you know, um, I called AAA. They sent a dude in this dude's like, I only got five, five gallons of gas. I was like, that's fine, dude. I just need one gallon. Okay. And then eventually I get to my place like right on time. Everything, alhamdulillah, worked out. Uh, but it was, you know, a couple of minutes of tremendous. First, it was, oh, man, why does this have to happen now? And then second issue was a whole lot of fear. So I am saying that you do allow yourself some space to, for your emotions. 
But if your emotions are going down the road of why me, that's destructive. That you want to avoid. As opposed to, I'm afraid, uh, I'm, I'm stuck, uh, I don't know what to do. That's normal. But why me is related to the pathway of thinking, okay, maybe Allah hates me or no one cares about me and all that stuff. All of that is in my imagination. None of that stuff helps. Does it make sense or, or uh, ask more? No, yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, I think uh, this paragraph that he's bringing up is is uh, a, a very very important uh, for 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 all of us. Uh, okay, uh, Iman, uh, Iman, Aman, why don't you read uh, another paragraph for us? You used to have friends of the opposite sex. Don, 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 don. Continue. Okay. Now you are taught that the sexes should be separated. This way, there is no chance of illicit intercourse. That, is, that might happen if you happen to be, you know, walking on the same set of stairs. But keep going, yeah. That is extramarital sex taking place. You were initially a little surprised that there is an assumption that men and women are so likely to have sex the minute that they are with each other. Perhaps it is the truth. You wonder whether there might be other problems that occur because of such a strict segregation. There are rumors of rampant homosexuality in societies that are so segregated that the opposite sexes almost never have opportunity to interact the way they do in the liberal. Decadent West. Is that pronounced decadent? Yeah, decadent. Your friends from strictly Islamic countries seem to be relieved that seem to be relieved to be on holiday somewhere in the West. They breathe easier and seem more interested in sinning than praying. Okay. They All right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's pause here for a second. So, so gender interaction is an issue that always comes up every single every single year with the MSA. And if I remember correctly, Mr. Adil Musra, um, in his very first MSA-related event last summer, that was his first question. So, what do you all do about gender interaction? I mean, do you allow it? I mean, Aman, were you in that meeting too? I feel like uh, somebody else was. <laughs> You know, I was there, I remember. Yeah, exactly. And then, so then I texted Tukwa and, and Salah, the MSA president, vice president. Okay, we got our new Nusser here. Although Nusser, his approach is very different, but Nusser is like the religious guy for his generation. So the Adil, <laughs> the religious guy for his generation. In any case, the, the point is that uh, I haven't found a formula that works in terms of gender interaction. So think of the two different extremes. One extreme is absolute 100% separation. Uh, watching the MSA over the years, that's what the MSA was like when I first started teaching here. And uh, I felt, number one, it was very, very unhealthy in terms of especially what both sides would think of each other. Uh, uh, it was very, very unhealthy that way. And then it was also very uh, hypocritical. Because all these, these Muslim guys would not talk to Muslim women, would not even say salam, would not even smile, had no problems talking to non-Muslim women, and then vice versa. So, like, it didn't even work. But, like, that would be the only thing the MSA cared about. There was an MSA president, and I give him a lot of grief about this now, who, when he got elected in his, you know, inauguration speech, he says, we are going to enforce gender segregation. Like, that was his first issue. Not like, we're going to focus on knowledge, or we're going to bring the community. That's what, that was his issue. 
And and it was like it almost felt like half the Jamochit puzzles were about gender segregation. And and so so that's one extreme. The other extreme is complete free-for-all, okay, which is also not healthy either. And so the closest thing that I've been able to come up with is number one, uh, you have to be dignified in the way you conduct yourself with everybody. You have to be dignified in the way you conduct yourself as, as a man, as a woman, et cetera, you know, with, with other men, with other women. This you have to do as part of being a Muslim. You have to also be honest with yourself about biology. I don't mean, you know, biology class, but I mean, so what I'm saying here is that, and some of you have heard this from me many times, if you spend time with someone, you're going to develop feelings. That's how biology works. And you'll develop, you know, sometimes the feelings will be feelings of repulsion, but you are going to develop feelings. That's just reality. You cannot escape it. And then relate to that, we don't have a system that works all that well in terms of finding a spouse. I mean, so we have, in theory, a courtship culture, which is that, all right, if you're interested in someone, then you go through a particular route, whether it's to talk to their family or talk to friends first to, to get interest in such. Uh, everybody's so alienated from everyone else, that road doesn't, doesn't really work. And then we also don't really have uh, proper expectations in terms of what's involved with a marriage. So it gets reduced to things like intimacy and sexuality and all that, as opposed to life partnership. And so this is one of the most dysfunctional aspects of our whole community right now. I mean, it's dysfunctional beyond dysfunctional. And that's not to say that everyone else is in better shape, but I'm saying in our community, this is, this is one of the big, uh, the big issues. But the core of what I'm saying is that everyone must conduct themselves with dignity and really emphasize dignity in how you, you behave. And then second is to be honest with yourself about biology. And then, I mean, but this is, these are questions that I wrestle with all the time, trying to figure out how to make these things work. So, and that's before even getting to the question of LGBT. Like here, he's not really speaking of LGBT. Here, he's more speaking of, of just the whole, you know, secrecy type culture that, that is taking place and such. Um, but, okay, uh, very good, Aman. How about if someone else reads now? Who would like to read? Who will volunteer? I'll just sit here and look like I'm frozen. I can read. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, is it they have stories to tell? Yeah. They have stories to tell you about strict Islam, stories about the way rules are enforced. In some strict Muslim societies, praying is not optional, but enforced with a stick and a shovel. In some strict Muslim societies, men must have beards for fear of punishment, and in some cases, death, and women must cover themselves up against their will. But you do not want to hear them or believe them. The Islam you know provides comfort and security. It's good and simple. They do not know what they're talking about. Yeah, I like that Later on. They do not know what they're talking about. Uh, <laughs> this is a thing, as you know, that in some places there are people who are hired to literally check to see if people are praying. And as you can imagine, if it's being compelled from the outside in, it's probably not going to be all that successful for someone developing faith. If you're praying out of fear of getting punished, then what you're actually doing is you're just showing up on time, you know, and just going through all the motions, but your mind is going to be elsewhere. 
And so obviously the goal is for it to grow from within and such, but that's what happens. I mean, we often have students that, that come from overseas countries who are, who are like their brains like stop functioning because of all the freedom we have here. And they can barely even handle having, you know, uh, you know, women in class with them. It's like, they don't know how to operate. It's like, literally, it's like system overload. I mean, I've had students that literally look like that. And, and, you know, they even come to my office because they, they struggle, like they don't know how to process this world. So, all right, continue. Later, I will try to answer the question whether it is more ethical to have a strict Islamic system or to have a psychologically healthy Islamic system, Islamic community. This question took years to evolve in my mind, but I think it's important for you and your friends to think about it before judging others. Then there are the occasional questions that come up about such topics as slavery and war booty. How do these subjects make sense in the world in which you live? What about the outstand, outstand, uh, astounding. Ast astounding violence that is committed in the name of Islam around the world, especially in the Muslim, in the Muslim countries? Islam is a religion of peace. We know this for certain. We greet each other with the phrase, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Each chapter of the Quran starts with the phrase, in the name of Allah, the merciful, the compassionate. We often utter the same words when beginning an action, such as setting off an, on a journey or, or starting a talk. So what kind of peace and when and who decides? Do you have anything to do with the decision? Is there a process for a decision to be reached? Perhaps we should just leave it to the scholars of Islam, the ulama, the, ulema, the guys we watch on those YouTube videos who speak confidently and loudly and know the answers. I so, suppose in oh, go ahead. So, so one point to think about that again, uh, those of you who are older, well, I guess it's only taqwa in this room, older in terms of loyal life, um, that you'll hear from me many, many times is that it's the responsibility of every generation of Muslims to figure out how to practice their Islam for their generation. And, and so we talked about last, we talked last time about how there is a generation evolution and we did today too, that the challenges of your generation are different than the challenges of my generation. And I'm speaking as someone who grew up here and I went to public school my whole life. And so, so the point is that what however worked for me in my generation is not going to work for you. And your generation as a collective has to figure out how, what, how to practice an approach to Islam that works. I mean, the prayers, fasting, all that stuff is going to stay the same. But what is it that's making faith hard psychologically? What is it that's making faith hard socially? You have to figure out for your generation. And you have to start the process of figuring it out for your kid's generation. And usually what happens is nobody takes on that responsibility. And so then it becomes this, this incomplete, ineffective version of Islam that gets handed off to the next generation and then handed off to the next generation and handed off to the next generation. And in the process, a lot of people are a lot more miserable than they need to be or they're missing out from all that Islam can provide for them. Uh, I'm saying from, from experience, from study and everything, that if you practice a religious Islamic life, your life will be significantly easier than if you did not. Even though from the, for, it looks like, okay, I got to do all these things and this and this and that. It's just like if you are someone who focuses on physical fitness on a regular basis, 
you're going to feel better than a person who does not, right? A, a proper diet, proper sleep, proper stress management, proper proper exercise. If you skip all that stuff, you in the short term are going to be happy. Long term, you're going to be miserable. And this is literally how Islam operates. Think of Islam as a holistic fitness system. And I'm just talking about dunya. That's even before talking about the akhirah, the, the afterlife and such. Uh, but you have to figure that out as a group project for uh, your generation. Games don't sleep, pray all night. <laughs> okay, nice. Okay. All right, uh, let's continue. Um, I suppose in light of the arguments of some of the truly radical groups out there, Islam is a religion of peace, but I do not think we have qu quite worked out on, worked out how. It's because, is it because we cannot be at peace when others have declared war on Islam? That is the basic argument that the radical types make. They tell you and me that Islam is a religion of peace and beauty and prosperity as soon as it's allowed to be so. And as long as it has enemies plotting, plotting openly and secretly to destroy Islam, then we need to fight in a manner where the end justifies the means. Sound like a fair argument? And I can tell you, I have heard it every day in different forms in the Arabic language for more than 30 years. But what if there's a different way of thinking about it? What if we could live as Muslims in peace, in peace both with the non-Muslims and with the Muslims who is different and with the Muslim who is different from us in behavior and sometimes in belief? What if we could, what if we can live in peace now? What would the Muslim if we were not angry at our position in the world. So I think, I think this is more true for people who are in the Middle East. Uh, uh, there's much more of a divide between East and West. Here we're right in the middle of the West. And so I think our consciousness is a little bit different. I think for most of us, there isn't as much of a concern about, okay, being friends with non-Muslims and stuff like that. Um, there might different, be different degrees of that, but I don't think that's as much an issue for us. But there is this increasing sentiment of this, this ongoing or growing battle between the lands of Christianity and the lands of Islam. And, and that uh, steadily has only gotten worse uh, with each of the last few decades. Um, and so, so the argument he's making is that people on the Muslim side are saying, if they're attacking us, then we should be justified attacking them. And that sounds logical, but he's going to say later on, obviously it doesn't work. So, uh, let's do a little bit more. Uh, why don't you read the next paragraph and show? You are correct in thinking that if someone is going to change the world for the better, then it's you. I believe if you entirely, I believe in you entirely, and I think you can. I just want you to be aware of a few things before you embark on a course that might lead you down the wrong path. The only binary world is not the the. Binary world is not the only Islamic world you can live in. There's much more gray in between the black and white that the ulama and the other scholars present us. And the gray is where you develop intellectually and morally. The gray area of uncertainty and doubt as to what is right and what is wrong is where you discover your right to think for yourself and to participate in the construction of our ethical world in practice. This is where I believe you will be able to serve this world in the next and being a thinking, ethically directed young Muslim. 
there is much room to grow as individuals, and in doing so, we can discover truths about our inclinations. You should, you should know that for every action, there is a reaction. Your perseverance, kindness, or humor creates a ripple effect in our community, just as much as your indifference, violence, or negativity. But in order to understand the Muslim individual, it is necessary to begin with an understanding of the Muslim landscape. It covers the Arab world and much of Southeast Asia, as well as Central Asia and North Africa. Okay, very good. Uh, I like this line where he's saying, and this is the dad speaking to the son, he says, I believe in you entirely and I think you can, right? And whether your parents show it to you or not, more than likely they actually believe this about you as well. More often than not, Daisy and Arab parents are going to tell you the opposite, you know, but uh, but what they actually mean. So here, I'll give you this example again, something that uh, an example I always use. Okay, so let's say you're in a competition, like a math competition, or, well, you guys are pre-meds, most of you, uh, pre-med competition uh, where like 50,000 people are competing and you come in second, okay? And you come home and tell your parents, I came in second in this competition. What do your common Desi or Arab parents say? Anyone? Why not first? <laughs> exactly. Okay. And, and, and so what you're hearing when they're saying, why not first is you failed. Why'd you even try? You're a loser. That's what you're hearing. What are they actually saying? They're saying, I know you had the capability of first. What didn't work? That's what they're actually saying. That's what they're actually intending. Kina's like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but the point is, uh, what you're hearing is the opposite. And, and it's funny because, you know, so one of the nice things about my work is that I get all this training on how to be a dad for my daughters. And so even when my, my older daughter, when she was starting college, you know, I said to her, hey, make sure we're just driving somewhere. I said to her, make sure you don't skip class when you're in college. And she goes, why do you think I'm going to skip class? And I go, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you're going to be tempted to skip class. And when those temptations come, I'm just giving you more reinforcement. Don't skip. And so the point is that when your parents are speaking, you're hearing this voice of authority. You're hearing this voice of skepticism, this voice that just says you will never fail at it. You will never succeed at anything in life, which is almost never what they're intending, even when they're angry. Right. And even think about this from, from my interaction with all of you. I mean, I know you'll never be as cool as me, no matter how hard you try. But the point is, that if I am giving you time, I'm basically telling you you're, it's worth it, that you're worth my time. And that's literally what your parents are doing. When they're giving you, so don't lie. Uh, I mean, I could do half of my job and I would still be like far exceeding, you know, in terms of what's required of my job. But the point is your, your parents aren't getting paid for it and they might often show it by food and, and other things as opposed to, I'm so proud of you. I mean, it's probably not gonna happen that way for, for most day senior parents. Um, seriously, being as cool as chaps would be a step down, yet you wish. Anyway, but the point is, uh, do not underestimate the value that people around you give to you. They just may not show it in the way you're expecting it, which then also likewise means do not underestimate your own self-worth and your own capabilities. Because one of the things that has happened, and this applies to people who are people of various minority populations. I mean, we do it as a society with our women as well, in general, but people of minority populations as well, is that you, you inherit 
this glass ceiling, this internal glass ceiling, where you almost feel like you can't, uh, you can't even think about accomplishing other things. So a lot of times you'll see me posting in the group chat, you know, this person graduated from Loyola. Like I posted something today uh, from a friend of mine, actually a student of mine, Asma Dean, who's writing, who wrote this article about a case that's in the Supreme Court. And part of the reason is that I want you all to read it, but part of it is also to show you, here's a person who's a little bit older than you, who she went to, she went to law school and she's even published a book on Islam that's been a bestseller. And she's been regarded now as this big authority on, on Islam and the U.S. Constitution and stuff. And you all have the capacity to do those things. You can't undersell yourself. But society is telling you you can't do anything. You know. And so, yeah, so this was good. Uh, we will continue, inshallah, next time with Landscapes of Islam. Anybody have any questions related to any of this or anything else? Aman, go for it. So I feel like there is a part we read where he asked, like, uh, they say Islam is the religion of peace, but what does that mean? Yeah. I feel like adding on to one rule I've come to learn is as above, so below. Meaning if there is outwardly peace, there's also inwardly peace, which cannot be. Uh Both go hand in hand. Uh And I feel like whilst the Muslim community is struggling to come at peace with one another, I feel like that's impossible until we come to peace with ourselves. Mm-hmm. What do y'all think? Agree, disagree, reflections? Yeah, uh, it's so hard not to be angry at others when, not, when you're not angry at yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? I definitely um, I agree like with that. I, just I feel Amina? like I <laughs> kind of agree, but um also it's like a balancing act because it's not like you're ever going to be fully at peace with yourself like i don't i don't know this is maybe my perspective but um i feel like that's like an ongoing process um Uh and like different situations can maybe like disrupt that peace within yourself so you can't really say that like you achieve peace within yourself and then you move on so Uh like i agree but like i think that it's more nuanced than that yeah, I mean, I would say probably built in even to what Aman is saying is the idea that this is a process. Like even like the question of justice, do you actually reach a point in society of justice or is it something that you keep making things more and more and more just, you know? So I think it's a, it's a, a fair criticism. Uh, Takwa, you were saying something? I'm going to say that I agree, but I also agree with what Amina said. Um, I feel like... I feel like you can at some point like reach a place where you're content with yourself. And I feel like at that point you're at peace. Like it doesn't have to be like, I guess like something that's unachievable almost, but I feel like it's something you feel within yourself and like each person's like idea of peace is a little different. And I, but I feel like once you have like a sense of like, I guess a sense of comfort, you can like help, others reach that and then like help your community reach that kind of like that ripple effect he was talking about towards the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, that also makes sense too. Any other thoughts, reflections? I think Aman implied that though, about being content with yourself. I mean, he didn't say achievement. Um, uh, what's that? At Ethiopia, Utopia. <laughs> Utopia. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Utopia, not Ethiopia. <laughs> but, uh, I think he implied that because contemption comes from 
not having your life perfect, but 100% surrender, 100% surrendering to Allah. When you leave your faith and accept everything 100%, that's when contempt comes from. And that could be in the form of, you could be in prison. And if you're just satisfied with Allah, you're content. And I think that's what Aman was trying to say, is that that strong faith in Iman, where you're contempt with Allah's decision and not just life. Like life could suck, but as long as you're content with the law, you are content. Cool. Any other thoughts about this or anything else? Uh -huh. Okay, very good. Uh, I think we had a lot of good stuff today. And so next time, inshallah, we'll be reading Landscapes of Islam, the next, uh, the next letter in this book. All right, subhanakallahumma bihamdika, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka, hunatubu ilayk. May Allah ta'ala reward you all, inshallah. And tomorrow evening again, 7 o'clock, 7 or 7.30, I think it's 7 o'clock, we'll do open conversation, which is, again, usually scheduled for 30-ish minutes. Last week, I had to end it at, after two hours because it was just going at full speed. And, well, that's fine. That's a good thing. You mean women's studies? Because that's what it feels like. You're welcome to keep putting your foot in your mouth but uh, aside from that um, we will continue inshallah otherwise next week alright everybody assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah